So, uh, oh wow, that felt powerful when I opened my mouth there. That was surprising. That was good. Okay, um, there are significant dangers in having an incorrect view of yourself. So uh, when I was, uh, I have this uh, personal recurring dream of mine. I, I was a theater kid in high school. Uh, and so I was involved in, in theater and on stage a lot. And you had all of this work that you had to do to memorize lines and memorize songs. And, and so, uh, so that was a lot of really hard, challenging work. And I still have a personal recurring dream that I will be called back to perform one of the shows that I performed when I was in high school and that I, I have somehow agreed to do this, but it's like this weekend, right? So the performance of the show is this weekend and somehow my estimation of my skill is such that I'm, I'm going to be able to recall all of those lines and all of those songs and then so you can imagine how this dream goes. I get on stage and it's a nightmare because I can't remember any of the lines or any of the songs, what did I even do agreeing to be a part of this, right? But this is a, this is a challenge. So I have a false view of myself, an incorrect view of myself, and it gets me in trouble. Uh, another place where this is true, having an incorrect view of yourself can get you in trouble, is the high school weight room. I can't tell you how many um, boys thought like thought that they could uh you know want to impress other people in the weight room right so they they put on a certain amount of weight and everybody else in the room looks at them and knows that they have uh they have an incorrect view of themselves at that point and what do they do well they go up and they they attempt to lift it and then it falls down and then everybody has to go and help them out right right so there's a danger in having an incorrect view of yourself uh sometimes I've heard of people doing this, right? Uh, someone might think that they have certain skills for a job, that they have everything that a job requires of them. And so they think, you know what? Like, it's okay for me to lie on my resume. I'm able to do everything this job requires of me. So I'm going to go ahead and write that I have the appropriate skills or experience. And then you come to find out after a while that person is in the job and they don't actually know what they're doing. They've had an incorrect view of themselves. And then what happens? Well, then your boss starts doing some investigating to figure out if, if this is actually true or not, and you end up in this dangerous situation because of an incorrect view of yourself, right? Like when we don't have a correct view of ourselves, we can get ourselves into significant trouble. And for what it's worth, the same is true of us spiritually. Like Jesus actually warned about this thing. In Matthew 7, verses 22 and 23, this is what it says. It says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Do we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Like, Lord, look at us. We are impressive. We have the things that are required to kind of earn favor with you, to be with you. But then in verse 23, it says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Right? So apparently, from Jesus' perspective, an incorrect view of ourselves can actually condemn us, right? Like an incorrect view of ourselves can lead us to a place that is not very good for our souls. And this is really important because there are tons of cultural messages delivered to us that say if you check certain boxes or if you perform certain actions that you are good with God. Like, if you check these boxes, then everything is okay, right? So maybe it's uh, if you 
vote correctly and align with the correct political values, you know what? You have checked all the boxes necessary. God's kind of good with you. Or maybe it's if, you know what, like if you generally do good and treat others with kindness as much as you can, you know what? God honors that. Like that's going to be good enough for God. Or maybe it's, uh, you know what, if you perform the right set of spiritual activities, like you make sure you kind of just check all the right boxes in terms of your activities, uh, God, you're going to be good with God. Or maybe it's, uh, it's, you know what, if you avoid, you spend your life and you can just avoid the right set of inappropriate behaviors in your life, then, then God will accept you, right? right? And all of those come with kind of an incorrect view of what our lives actually mean. Right, like there are powerful forces at work actually like trying to get us to believe these messages, to kind of accept the view of self that they provide, and, and to also get a sense of security from them that they're not actually able to provide. Right? And this is not a new thing. This has been the reality throughout human history. Like we let ourselves, we let our cultures tell us kind of the things that, what the, the right things to do are, what the boxes are that we have to check to be right with God. And it has always been really, really hard work for the gospel to come in and dispel those messages. So we are uh, continuing a series this morning called How Jesus Made Followers. So uh, as we've been walking through this series, this is our last week in this series, we've been watching Jesus kind of walk with his disciples, and he's drawing his disciples from kind of being casual observers of him to engaged followers to those who actually carry out his work. And as they carry out his work, we kind of have gone through, we've discovered really three things about how Jesus made followers and how, how, what that means for how we make followers. And I just kind of want to review those things. Let's go back to them. So how to make Jesus followers. Number one, you want to provide them simple opportunities to come and see Jesus. Right? As many, as many and as often as you can, give them simple opportunities for them just to encounter Jesus. Number two, you want to talk about Jesus' power in your life and then point them to Jesus' power for their lives. And then number three, you want to work as hard as you can to quit making roadblocks between Jesus and other people. Right? So that's what we saw last week. We want to stop making roadblocks between Jesus and other people. So we're on the fourth week now, and then uh, what we're seeing is that every, everyone that Jesus is drawing to himself, including his disciples, the, the cultural air that they breathe has already been discipling them in a certain way. It has already been telling them to go and believe certain things. And, and Jesus has to kind of create situations where the people who are following him begin to question the things that they have been discipled to believe. Right? They have to reconsider their core messages about who they are, about who God is and what he values. And, and this is the reason why. It actually says at the end of John chapter 2, the very reason why Jesus has to do this. In John 2.23 it says, Now... When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, right? So people have come to believe in him. But verse 24 says this, Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to that because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in every human being. 
Right? And what's really interesting, it says they believed in him, that word entrust, that word entrust is the same exact word that it uses for believe back in the previous verse. So what it's saying is that they believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. Right, so, so there is a lot of darkness to be undone. And the question is, how does Jesus hope to go about undoing it? So John chapter three, verse one, it says this. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. If there are boxes to check, homeboy has checked them, right? Like he has got this thing figured out, right? Like he is a pro-do-gooder. Here's kind of the message that he has about being close to God, and he has checked all of the right boxes. This is Nick's message about being close to God. Uh, I come from the right bloodline. Right? I am from Jewish descent. I am a part of God's special people. I can perform the right devout spiritual activities, and I do them every single day and every single hour on the hour. Right? I have met high standards of Jewish success. I have risen to the, the upper echelons of the people who are leading the Jews. Right? So like he has done all of these things rightly, and he has worked his whole life to kind of prove that he is successful, that he is accomplished when it comes to the things of God. So it comes to verse 2, and this is what it says. This man came to Jesus by night, and that's just interesting that he came to him by night. The kind of implication here is, uh, and one thing that even the writer John is telling us, that he came uh, lacking understanding and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, and no one can do these signs that you've been doing unless God is with him. So, uh, so yeah, night is probably a, a, a spiritual reality. It's kind of this physical metaphor. Now, most certainly, Nicodemus is coming to him at night, but John's telling us that it's night so that we understand Nicodemus's situation. His understanding is darkened. And then I want you to notice two things. First, I want you to notice Nicodemus's view of himself. Right? He approaches Jesus with this kind of formal introduction And it gives us insight to the things that Nicodemus values. First, he calls Jesus rabbi, which, for what it's worth, is an address of kind of significant honor, right? Nicodemus is kind of seeking to honor Jesus in this moment. It means that he considers Jesus to be an equal. And then he says, God is with you. You come from God, right? He's recognizing God is like significantly at work and your life. But then, do you know what else he says? He says, Jesus, we know some things about you we do. We, Jesus, we know who you are. We know the things that you're doing. We know that you must come from God. It's kind of ironic that Nicodemus is standing in front of God in the flesh and talks to Jesus about what we know about him. Right? And, and so, so Nick, what he's trying to do here is he's trying to give Jesus this hospitable introduction. But in this introduction, it's all laced with his incorrect view of himself. So that's the first thing to notice. And the second thing to notice is his emphasis on Jesus' signs. 
right? He thinks that this is all about the signs, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. So, so this is what Jesus is going to do. He's going to respond to Nicodemus, and with his response, he begins dismantling all of Nicodemus's assumptions and emphases, right? So verse 3, he says this, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So if you read this dialogue in English, Jesus is not like going with the flow of the conversation here, right? Like it just doesn't seem to make sense. It's kind of clunky. It doesn't flow naturally. But, but this is what Jesus is actually doing. He's responding to Nicodemus with a play on words. In verse 2, Nicodemus said, no one can do these signs. And then in verse 3, Jesus said, if you think no one can do that, let me tell you what no one actually can do. Right? That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you think that's significant, if you think signs are significant, I want to tell you something really significant that no one can actually do. And so here, Jesus confronts Nicodemus' assumptions. He actually talks about the kingdom of God. So he confronts Nicodemus' assumptions. Assumption number one. These signs are the thing that you have to offer. Right? That's Nicodemus' first assumption. From the Pharisees' high position, their, their kind of rules as those lifted up in the Jewish religion, this is the best thing that they could say about Jesus. Like, in, in fact, in their mind, there was nothing else of value that they could say about Jesus. Do you know why? Because he was a carpenter and the son of a carpenter. Right? Like in that day, he worked with his hands. And to work with your hands in that situation, like you're of fairly low status. You know what the, the Pharisees do all day for all of their lives? They study scripture. They memorize scripture. Right? They, they work to kind of succeed in the upper echelons of Judaism. But he's a carpenter, right? So, so they don't have that value for him, but he is doing signs. And that's kind of significant. So he must kind of have some authority on that. Uh, and so, so he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to talk to you about the things that you have authority to speak about. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, let me tell you what I actually have authority to speak about. I can tell you about the kingdom. Right? I can speak with clarity about the kingdom. And for what it's worth, the Pharisees were really the only ones who could speak with some kind of authority about the kingdom. But Jesus steps in and talks about the kingdom. And so... That was Nicodemus' assumption. Jesus' response is, the kingdom is what I have to offer. So uh, Nicodemus' second assumption is this, that being a man of God is significant. Right? He says, uh, Nicodemus, we, Nicodemus says, we know you come from God. This is a big deal to be one who comes from God. And for what it's worth, the Pharisees, they thought that they came from God. They were God's gift to the Jewish people. They were the ones who were supposed to lead the Jewish people out of kind of their wishy-washiness of their faith to guide these wayward Jews into the things of God, right? They had the Jewish heritage, right? Their, their blood, that this put them ahead of the Gentiles. But not only that, they had their lineage from other studied people, right? They were amongst the studied people of those in, uh, of the Jewish people. And then they had achieved great successes, Right? And so Nicodemus had risen highly even among those Pharisees. They saw, like, they were the authority on what it meant to be close to God. They saw themselves as men who were come from God, just like Jesus. And so Jesus' response to Nicodemus is this. 
If you don't have a new birth, none of it matters. If you don't have a new birth, Nicodemus, none of it matters. So Jesus challenged the significance of his Jewish heritage. He challenged the value of all of his accomplishments. And he says, hey, Nick, none of that is going to get you where God is. It won't do it. So, so imagine Jesus confronting us for a second. We think that uh, God must accept me for the good I've done, the kindness I've extended to other people. And Jesus would say, actually, to get where God is, you need a new birth. Right? Or maybe we think, you know what, my great work ethic and my commitment to my family, they're unmatched. Well, that might be true, but to get where God is, you need a new birth. Or perhaps we think, you know what, like, I, I rightly know and affirm and articulate good biblical truths about Jesus. You know what, that's a really great start. But to get where God is, you need a new birth. Right, like no matter how much good we do or how much good we decide to start doing, nothing can undo the way that we've already tainted God's creation with our rebellion. Right, like we are yet products of brokenness. We are yet products of decisions where we have failed to honor God's image in other people. We are yet products of times that we told God, I think I know better than you do. And no matter how much good we do, we yet need a new birth. So, so let's be clear. Jesus in this moment, he is not being a jerk to Nicodemus. In fact, there's, there's this reality where he's probably being quite gentle with him, but he's sharing truth with him. So, so verse four says this. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I was listening to a preacher this week. His name is D.A. Carson. And, and he says, you know what, Nick is asking uh, Jesus. Like, is this the story of the incredible shrinking rabbi here? Like, is, is that what you're telling me? Are you telling me I have to somehow pull a Benjamin button and uh, uh, de-age myself so that I can come out of my mother's womb a second time? And this Nicodemus, he's being funny. Right? He's cracking a little bit of a joke because what Jesus said makes no sense. Right? He's calling on Jesus kind of in this veiled way. He's saying, you know what, Jesus, can you speak more plainly for me? So Jesus explains a little bit further. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you. It's the same way he started uh, verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So, so consider this verse. If you were just to put this verse in parallel to verse 3, he says almost the same exact thing he said in verse 3, except for two parts. Right? First, he more clearly defines what it means to be born again. So in verse 3, he said, uh, unless you are born again. And in uh, verse 5, he says, unless you are born of water and the Spirit. And then uh, at the end, he expands on how we encounter the kingdom of God. That we don't just see the kingdom of God when we're born again, but that we enter the kingdom of God when we're born again. And so here's, here's what he means by again. He means of water and the Spirit. Now, if you're at all familiar with, uh, and, and Nicodemus would certainly have been expected to be familiar with Old Testament prophecy about a new covenant 
that was coming, about a new work that God was going to do. Because Nicodemus, he had to have these things memorized. If he was the teacher, the rabbi, like risen to the top in Israel, he would have known this. Right? There are promises of God in responding to Israel's rebellion, and these are those promises. Ezekiel 36, 25, and 26. Verse 25 says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. So for what it's worth, a promise here about water is a promise of cleansing, a promise of making right, a promise of forgiveness that's going to come. And forgiving and water and cleansing, like these are all consistent themes throughout the Old Testament. So there's a promise about cleansing. And then verse 26, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. Right? This, this giving of a spirit, the spirit, it's about transformation from the inside out. Right? In the Old Testament, the spirit is uh, kind of this, the Holy Spirit is about supernatural empowering, enlivening of a person. And that empowering, uh, in this circumstance, what Jesus is saying is that empowering leads to a transformation so that it could be said of you, you are of a different sort than you were before. You have been born again. So Jesus says, this is what needs to happen. You need to be born by, number one, being cleansed and forgiven, being born of water. And number two, born of the Spirit, being empowered to live in an otherworldly way of transformation. So verses 6 and 7, this is what Jesus says. That which is born of flesh is flesh, right? Like the, the brokenness inside of humanity can only continue to give birth to more brokenness. Like the brokenness is only going to perpetuate itself if you're going to rely on something inside of humanity. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Come on, Nick, like you know the brokenness of this world. You know your own pride. You know the history of the damage that it has caused and is still causing. It has no place in the kingdom. Right? Something else has to bring about new life in you for you to be where God is. Only the Spirit can make you the kind of person fit for the kingdom. And so, John 3, 8, it says this. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. How many of you in here trust the weatherman wholeheartedly? No. Of course you don't. But we call it a science now, for what it's worth. We do call it a science. People study it. They spend a lot of time trying to figure out how it works. And for what it's worth, we know a fair bit about how it works, but, but we're not successful in actually predicting what the weather is going to do. It's still kind of unpredictable to us, right? So, so Jesus actually, he lives in a time, they didn't have weather science. Nobody could actually predict what the weather or the wind was going to do. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, Nicodemus, you can't predict the wind. You can't control the wind. You can't understand the wind. But you know when the wind shows up, right? Because you hear it whooshing 
by your ears. You see the leaves kind of moving on the ground, right? You see the way that the the wind impacts the world around you. You feel the chill of the wind on your skin. You see the trees bend when it blows. In our case, you come to church the next day and you see the shingles that are all falling on the ground because the wind has blown so hard, right? The Spirit is the same way. For every person who is addicted or stealing or living a questionable lifestyle, and also for every person who affirms good theology and reads their Bible, and goes to church, and works hard, and cares for their family, for all of them. You don't know if the Spirit is going to breathe new life in that person. You don't know if that person is going to develop a genuine faith. You can't understand or anticipate the actions of the Spirit, but you know what? You can see when the Spirit has given birth to something new. You can see when the Spirit has gone to work and brought about new life. Like, what are the effects of it then? Like, if we're talking about uh, how the wind blows and the Spirit moves, like, what do we see when the Spirit moves? Well, a person can go from worship often feeling like an obligation to, to actually, like, it becoming something that you anticipate and long to be a part of. You can go from the Bible being boring, being a thing that you don't want to associate with, to like wanting to go and spend an hour in an evening in the middle of your week studying it with other people. Right? You can go from kind of keeping your house and your things and your time to yourself to figuring out what it looks like to make time and space and life that other people can fit into. You can go from being apathetic about the concerns of those who are hurting to actually like having a passion to ensure that those people are cared for. Why is this? Like, why do these changes take place? Well, it's because of this. Being born again is a change of loves. It's a change in loves. You go from loving you and what's yours to starting to love Jesus and what's his. Right? And this is kind of what we call, for what it's worth, this is what we call in the church spiritual regeneration. Spiritual regeneration. So that something that once was dead has life breathed on it by the Spirit of God and comes to life to love God as he truly is. And here's the result. Romans eight sixteen. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It doesn't mean that everything in your life changes all at one time. But what Jesus is saying, like, if there is no tangible shift in the things that your heart loves, it's appropriate to question whether you really believe from the heart or if you simply perform some series of obligatory religious actions. So in Christian circles, for what this is worth, in Christian circles, I think it's harder to discern because we grow up in a culture that does obligate us to religious action to a degree. Because actually, like, what we're talking about is the difference between a cultural Christian and a true Christian, right? Like, so here's a note. Like, a significant number of our friends and our neighbors, the people that we're trying to reach, like, I just think of even, even about, like, the eight neighbors that I have surrounding my house, a significant portion of them, I, in fact, the majority of them come from Christian backgrounds, right? And would even identify as Christian. 
right? So they come from a background that still has the effects of cultural Christianity still upon it. So, so we kind of have to talk about what is the difference between growing up culturally Christian and being a true Christian. Well, cultural Christians, they, they grew up Christian, but true Christians confessed their sins and trusted in Jesus. Cultural Christians attended church for a nostalgic kind of feel at Christmas and Easter, right? Uh, but true Christians attend church to worship and love. Cultural Christians rarely, if ever, serve or give because, hey, it's my time and my money. But true Christians learn to sacrifice. Cultural Christians focus on morality, behavior modification. True Christians focus on knowing God. Cultural Christians believe that they are accepted by God based on their behavior and their activity in their life, but true Christians find acceptance with God in Jesus and therefore abide in him. Cultural Christians don't understand missionaries, right? Like, at the end of the day, that just seems imprudent, right? But true Christians, we get it. We get that people would sacrifice their lives to to go across the world to bring the gospel to other people. Cultural Christians have a supreme passion and obsession with something that is not Jesus. But true Christians have Jesus as their supreme passion. Cultural Christians zone out when they hear the gospel because they kind of think, you know what, I've been there, I've done that, I've heard that enough times, can we move on to something else? But true Christians have a tender heart every time the gospel is preached. And Jesus' point is this. When the wind blows, you're going to see its effects. You're going to see it working. So from there, Nicodemus is still confused. And so, so Jesus and him, they, they have this discussion. Uh, and Jesus' thing is, Nick, it should be easy for you to understand these things. And then Jesus kind of indicates his authority to speak definitively about these things. Kind of this discussion continues back and forth between them. And so we're going to skip ahead a little bit. He summarizes this talk about the new birth with this statement in verse 14. It says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So lifted up in John, whenever the the apostle John uses the word lifted up, he's always talking about Jesus' crucifixion. He's saying, and he's referencing back to this time. It's in the book of Numbers, Numbers 21. Nicodemus had this memorized, no doubt. He's saying when God, when Israel had complained about how God rescued them, right? Imagine complaining about how somebody rescued you. Um, They said, God, you brought us out here to die. We loathe this worthless food that you have been providing for us, which, by the way, God was making manna rain down from heaven every single day to make sure that in a desert where there was no food, Israel would have food. They said, we we loathe this worthless food. God had been enduring this kind of talk from the people of Israel for a long time. And so here was his response. He sent poisonous serpents that attacked the people. And some of the people died. And then the people came to Moses and they said, Moses, make it stop. We don't want this anymore. And so this is what God told Moses to do. He said, uh, place a serpent, a bronze serpent, cast it out of bronze, place it on a pole, and lift it up. And then when the people look at that serpent, they are going to be healed. They're going to have their eyes, and as they fix their gaze upon it, they will not die. They will have life uh, as they look at the serpent. And so when Jesus uses this illustration, this is what he's saying. He's saying, you know what? Sin, your brokenness, this person that you are, Everything that is inside you, it is poisoning your soul. 
And just as that serpent was lifted up on a pole so that the people could survive the effects of the poison, I am going to be lifted up on a piece of wood so that people can have eternal life despite their sin. And eternal life here is no doubt synonymous with seeing the kingdom and entering the kingdom. So Jesus says, if they believe in the one who is lifted up on the tree, they will be born again. And then he explains himself even further in verses 16 and 21. We're not going to go through this whole thing. Instead of going through every detail of verses 16 and 21, I want you to notice three things about verses 16 and 21. Number one, God's love begets new birth. This is historically remarkable, like that God would be a God of love uh, for the rest of the world and the rest of history, aside from the last, say, 100 years or so. This would have been a very remarkable reality because God was powerful and God had standards and God was judgmental, right? God had wrath against people. And so to say that that God has love for people at the same time, that would have been really remarkable. Now today, we just think it's his job to love, right? Like, oh, that's just what God does because that's who he is. Like he just loves us. Right? But it's significant to say that God so loved the world that was broken by sin and, and uh, disobeyed him and decided that they knew better than he did. God so loved them. Like, like think about it for you. Like, I think about myself. Like, what that's saying is that God so loves Alex. Right? Now, there's nothing particularly lovable or impressive about Alex. Right? Like, there's nothing that I can do that kind of, kind of proves to God how lovable I am, right? Like I've not performed some certain set of actions. In fact, if you go based on the things that I've done, I've shown actually time and again to God that like if it's based on my actions, I'm not very lovable, right? But this says, regardless of what I've done, God so loved Alex. Like there's something about God that he would choose to love people who have acted in a way that is against him. So so God's love begets new birth. Number two, new birth can come to anyone, right? Like I'm grateful that it says whoever can find new birth, whoever. Like I think of people in my life that I know that I, I, I certainly had in my mind gone, oh my goodness, it would be a miracle if the Lord saved them. Guess what? Whoever believes in him can have eternal life. And that is really good news. Number three. The world can only offer what ends in condemnation. Verse 18 talks about this. Right? We have systems that we develop whether it's systems of cultural acceptance, systems of moral performance, systems of behavior modification. We develop systems that say if you come from a certain heritage, then you're good. If you have the right efforts, then you're good. If you work hard, then you're good. And, and heritage and uh, efforts and uh, behavior, like trying to be a better person and hard work, like those are all valuable things. But if you think that they're enough to make you stand in the presence of a holy God, 
a God of the universe, the God who created everything and wanted everything to be good and right and perfect. If you think your action is good enough to make you stand in his presence, you have greatly misunderstood yourself. And so Jesus' main idea, the main point with all of this is this. Everyone's last hope is new birth. Everyone's last hope is new birth. Okay, so what? So what? How do we make Jesus followers with this? What does this mean for how we make Jesus followers? Number one, we need to work gently to dispel cultural spirituality in our personal interactions. So we need to work gently to dispel cultural spirituality in our personal interactions. Often the things that we have come to place our confidence in, uh, whether the things that we've kind of been discipled into, they become very personal to us, right? So whether it's a kind of personal activity or religious performance that you do to prove that you're good with God or belief that, you know what, the belief that I've been a good person all my life and God's going to honor that, right? Like that is a very, those things are very powerful inside of us. Right? These things are associated oftentimes with your families and people who have gone before you. Right? So you cannot attack these things with a bulldozer of truth in your personal interactions. So, so here's what you do. You share a little bit of truth, a little bit of scripture, and you ask questions. Like, what, what, as you read that, what does it seem like Jesus is saying? And then you share some more scripture and you ask more questions. And, and you don't just focus on this one thing where it seems that they're getting wrong. You show them different facets of who Jesus is, right? This is the other three things that we've been talking about uh, up to this point, right? We show them Jesus. We point them to Jesus' power. We remove as many roadblocks as we can and we keep doing that so that they see more and more and more of Jesus. And then this is what we do. We let Jesus do the work of kind of breaking down those walls that are related to these really powerful assumptions that we have about the way God ought to treat us. So then we help them see Jesus. And then, like, this is why it's so important to pray for them too. Right? We let Jesus go to work at breaking down assumptions. And then, you know what's beautiful? Like it happened with Nicodemus. By the end of his story, you know what he's doing? He's giving up his money and his affluence and his status with the Pharisees so that he can go and bury Jesus' body when he dies. Right? Like, he gives Jesus a proper burial, which tells us that at some point Nicodemus came to believe. Uh, Number two. So what, number two? You cannot manipulate regeneration into taking place in others. I feel like there are like many systems and events and experiences built to try to manipulate others into experiences. And then we say, if you perform a a certain action at our experience, like pray a certain prayer, then you will know for sure that you are saved. And I'm, well, like you can't manipulate the spirit of God into working. You can't control the wind. Right? So, So how people come to a saving faith is a work of the Spirit, and the Spirit does not work in a formulaic way. Which is why your prayer for that person is a crucial part of the equation, right? Because the Spirit sees how, uh, like, you working, and you are kind of asking God to move on behalf of that person. 
So we pray and we and then we share the appropriate truth at the appropriate times and we extend invitations. Absolutely, we extend invitations for people to believe in Jesus. But believing is so much more than just getting people to agree with you about Jesus. Right? It's kind of like a personal coming to the end of yourself. Realizing that what you bring to the table is not nearly enough to earn God's acceptance. Realizing that rebellion in you has played a part in furthering the brokenness of this world. Realizing that you have nothing in yourself and that whatever God has, that's what you need. Right? And for people to come and walk through that process and discover those realizations, it is a different process for everyone. So we pray and we share truth and we invite them to believe holding with an open hand that the Spirit is going to do His work in His timing. Number three, a question. Have you experienced a new birth? Like maybe this morning you're recognizing that you need to come to the end of yourself and confess your need for Jesus to make you new. If that's you, if you are in that spot, you are recognizing, no, I actually, what I need is a new heart. I need to be changed. And you want to do that this morning. Right now, I'd invite you to pray with me. And would we all pray together, please? Lord Jesus, thank you that you love me so much. I now turn away from the brokenness that I've caused in this world. I now look to your death for my forgiveness. And I need you to make me new. I now place my confidence in you as Savior and Lord of my life. Lord Jesus, I pray for us as we are seeking to impact the people around us as we're seeking to uh, make a difference, as we're seeking to draw people to you, to help them see more of you, to help them hopefully, Lord, be changed by you. We all need the new life that you have to offer. So Lord, help us to be those who understand the situations of people and understand how important it is that not one lick of our good deeds can do anything to get us where you are but that Jesus is extending to us new life, an opportunity to be made new so that we can be where you are. Lord Jesus, I thank you for these gifts, and I pray all of this in your name. Amen. Well, we're going to come to the table, and the table is the place where we gaze at what Jesus has done for us. So uh, in a moment, we are going to have a period of time of reflection. I just want you to be in that time of reflection. Reflect with gratefulness on the new life that Jesus has extended to you. And look to Jesus and thank him for this cleansing that we did not deserve. Right? Look to him with gratefulness. So uh, as we reflect, we are going to have a, a little bit of silence. We'll have a little bit of music in the background. And then what's going to happen is that we are going to come to the table. So you can either come through this middle row in the back here, or you can come from either of the sides in the front. You come up and you take a piece of bread and you take a cup of juice and return to your seat. And then uh, after a period that we've all had to reflect, about three or four minutes, we will partake of the bread and the juice together.
If you're with us and you're not a Christian this morning, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, I want to let you know that we're really, really happy that you are here with us. Um, This is a meal. This table is kind of a reflection to us of Jesus extending his hospitality to us, that his body was broken and his blood was shed for our sake so that we could come in and be with God. We could be invited into relationship with God. But if if you haven't trusted in Jesus, this is kind of a proclamation that Christians make as we take the bread and the juice. So we just ask that as other people come up to the table, we just ask you to stay in your seats as you uh, reflect with us. And I honestly, I just invite you and I implore you to trust in Jesus. All right, so, so as we reflect, as we come to the table, we'll take the bread and the juice. And then after we've reflected for a period of time, Garth is gonna lead us to eat the bread and the juice together. So the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. He lifted it up to heaven and he gave thanks for it. He blessed it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then the Apostle Paul, as he was helping Christians reflect on what it means that we get invited to this table, he says, every time that you eat this bread and drink this cup, you together, as the body of Christ, you are proclaiming the Lord's death again and again and again as a reminder of his hospitality to us until he comes and we see him face to face. Alliance Bible Church, I would invite you to spend some time in reflection and then as you are led to come to the table. Let's reflect together. Amen. Alliance Bible Church, I would invite you to receive these words from the Apostle Paul. He says that every one of us who is in Christ is a new creation. That the old things have passed away, praise the Lord, and all things have become new. Alliance Bible Church, it has been a privilege and a pleasure for us to be able to worship with you this morning. Thank you so much for worshiping with us.